Thanks be to God indeed. And let's hope that the words of my mouth and the thoughts of all our hearts will be pleasing to God as we contemplate the ascension. Because today is a great day in the Christian calendar. It's a great day of transition and of change. And it's also a great day of wonder and mystery. In his ascension, our Lord rose to heaven to take his place at the right hand of the Father. And when trying to think how to begin this sermon, there are many different ways people might approach it. So I'm going to start with a prayer from St. Augustine, which I think summarizes the overall feel of, of what we'll be thinking about throughout this talk. If you have risen with Christ, set your hearts on things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Seek the things that are above, not the things that are on earth. For just as he remained with us even after his ascension, so we too are already in heaven with him, even though what is promised to us has not yet been fulfilled in our bodies. We cannot be in heaven as he is on earth by divinity, but in him we can be there by love. Although the ascension is great, it's not especially well understood when compared to, say, the birth, the resurrection, the crucifixion. So it's worth spending a while looking at the story in more detail. As always, we turn to the Bible to guide us. And what does it say about this event? John says, When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. That is a big understatement. While he was blessing them, he was taken up to heaven. That's all John says. This, presumably one of the greatest miracles that ever took place, is summarized in fewer than 15 words. And the rest of the Bible is similarly opaque about the, the ascension. Two of the gospel writers make no mention of it. One makes a passing reference. And at the book, start of the book of Acts, the ascension is referred to, and it is referred to in essentially exactly the same way, except it's something along the lines of, he left them and was taken up into heaven and was hidden from their eyes by a cloud. So the weather was added in to hide Jesus as he ascended. It's interesting, the weather is rarely talked about in the Bible. There's a spell in Genesis where the weather is fundamental to the story. And in the ascension, a cloud is mentioned. And I kind of got sort of sidetracked imagining what it would be like to be at this scene. And the popular image is one where... Um, let's have a look. Essentially, we as humans are on the ground and Jesus is lifted up and away. And this image sort of sticks with people. But um, I began to analyse the rainfall in Israel. I was procrastinating, like, at grade A level. And it occurred to me that Israel has quite a lot of rain, but in short, severe bouts. So when he was hidden by a cloud, I imagine that the weather was overbearing. Jesus ascended and was taken away. So what actually happened when he rose up into heaven? I find this image is unhelpful for us to understand what's going on in this scene. Whoops. This, oh, come on. this one has an element of mystery around it. Now, hundreds of years ago, this might have been taken at face value. Going up takes you to heaven, going down takes you to hell. But modern science, we know that up depends on where you are in the world. And with telescopes, we've looked into space a long way, and there's no sign of heaven yet. At face value, this might be something of a problem which we need to solve. Certainly some people worry about these aspects. And the anti-God brigade, this is the sort of thing they will wheel out to say 
your faith makes no sense. We know there's no up and ascending into heaven. So we can either ignore this, or we can tackle it head-on. And it's the head-on approach I'm going to take in this, in this service. Fortunately, I see no problems with a passage such as this at all. There's no need to think of heaven as something far, far away, which you'll eventually get if you go in a rocket and wait long enough. Because heaven and God, this is clear in the Bible, are close by, not remote and far. The ascension is an act about which God has chosen to remain a mystery. Its truth is shrouded behind the cloud. Now, the Catholic Church has at various times tackled these issues where science and faith appear to be at odds with each other. And at the Vatican II Council, it was asserted that the Bible holds literal truths and spiritual truths, a conclusion which makes sense to me. So the literal ascension, what happened on that specific day, remains a mystery. Whatever happens, our eyes were shielded from it by a great cloud. This is the way of God with mysteries. He chooses to reveal what he chooses, and he hides what he chooses to hide. Pursuing the literal aspects of the ascension is a futile exercise. So what about the spiritual aspects of the ascension, the spiritual truth of Jesus ascending to heaven? Well, here those who study the Bible report something of a problem, because there are two others who were taken up throughout the Bible. And whilst I sip my drink, I wonder if anyone can think who these two others were. suggestions? Elijah indeed. In 2 Kings it said there appeared a chariot of fire and a horse of fire and Elijah went up by a whirlwind to heaven. Very good. Anyone else? Enoch. Do you know the passage? Okay. Genesis 5.25 right at the beginning Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. What an amazing verse. Now Again, this is something where people might say, well, if others have ascended, where's the biblical truth in Jesus having ascended? What makes this special? Why is he not just a man who's ascended? Well, it turns out that in the Jewish understanding of the universe, there were three aspects of heaven. There were the clouds, aspect one. There were the stars and planets, aspect two. And there was a third aspect, which was heaven, the realm of God, where God lives. And it's understood by Bible scholars that Elijah and Enoch were elevated, but Jesus himself rose to heaven. He was the only man to do this. Now, while such discussions might be of intellectual interest, they're really dry and dead, not living and breathing as the Bible is meant to be. I only refer to them because I know many people have a sort of a niggling feeling inside that they've not really thought about this issue, and it's worth addressing these issues, but it's a side issue. The fundamental issue is the living, breathing God who is with us today. Amen indeed. For me, the key message of the ascension, I think I say the key message lots of times, a key message of the ascension is that Jesus moved on decisively from the disciples. There could be no uncertainty in their mind. Jesus had ascended. They were physically left to sort themselves out. It was their turn to take center stage, to act, to make their way in the world, From a literary point of view, the ascension placed right at the start of the book of Acts is like a prelude to the scene. While he was blessing them, he left and was taken up into heaven. Jesus exits, disciples take the spotlight in the physical sense. 
And I suspect this is why it's referred to so minimally, because we're more said about this, and we're more said about the wonders and mysteries that Jesus has told the disciples about after his resurrection. It would take the focus away from the fact that the ascension is fundamental to the aspect of our salvation. Jesus ascends, we on earth are his hands and feet. It's one of those events that I would love to have been out to witness. Not literally just because of the physical aspects, but the power and the emotion attached to that event must have been unbelievable. I mean, can you imagine the emotional and spiritual roller coaster that the disciples were on? You know, Vicky, wonderful to hear her speak. And even the memory of working on that boat to help people brought emotion and tears to our eyes. This, to my mind, the disciples were there. Jesus explained things. He taught them and left. What an incredible day. And if you take it in the context of how and when things happened, it must have been quite amazing. There was the pain and loss at the crucifixion where their Lord was taken from them. There was the incredible joy and amazement at his resurrection three days after the crucifixion. And then so soon afterwards, he was taken up into heaven, taken from those who surely needed him. I think of Thomas. Thomas didn't believe. And I suspect the reason he didn't believe is because he couldn't dare to believe. And Thomas finally believed. He opened his heart to belief. And then, a few days later, 40 is the traditional number, Jesus was essentially snatched away from him. How cruel, in some sense, for these disciples. What I've said so far isn't in any way meant to diminish the significance of the ascension, the inevitable conclusion of the life of Jesus on earth. And what a life it was. It's worth recapping the main points in bullet form. He was born into poverty, humbly, we can infer that he left Israel to go into hiding for a period of time. We next find out that he got lost in the temple. A huge gap where all we can infer is that Joseph, his stepfather, died. And then suddenly, the wedding at Canaan. And the Bible's full of about three years of Jesus' life. The Bible tells us exactly what we need to know, not a jot more. Whilst it would be interesting to know about Jesus' life before then, it is not shared with them. It's not revealed to us. It's not the focus of the spiritual message of the Bible. I see the ascension as changing such a short time. And I wonder if the disciples thought, why couldn't Jesus just save them all there and then? He'd risen from the grave. Why couldn't he have just ended evil and injustice? But if he had, then we here today in Campbell wouldn't have had our chance at the complexities of life. We wouldn't have had our attempt to grow in the image of God. Because our lives are precious to God, each and every one of us. Not just who we are, but what we do. Right from the first breath to our last, our actions and our choices matter. The Bible isn't there just to record some great things that God, the prophets, the disciples and Jesus did. It's there to be a clear guide to our lives. Is it a clear guide? Not particularly. I've read it a few times and I still struggle to understand even the main message. Is it straightforward? No. In most parts, you have to reflect and think and ponder on the message. Is it relevant to me today and tomorrow and yesterday? Absolutely. The Bible's there for us. Regardless of our age, we all have a past. 
We all have a present and we all have a future into which we're moving now. And I wonder, do you look back on your past with happiness, sadness, regret, longing, wishful thinking, anger, joy? There are many ways in which our past has affected us. What were the key moments in your life so far, the really important days which mattered, events which shaped who you are? Some are sad, some are joyful, some are regrettable, some were planned. Do these make you look to the future with hope, excitement, longing, fear, dread, all emotions that we might face at various times? Are you an agent of change or are you helpless, blown along through life like the proverbial tumbleweed? Or are you simply too busy, too successful, too unwell, too preoccupied with the now to consider such matters? Let's reflect on our lives so far. When did life take hold of you? When we're born, we live entirely in the present. We have no hopes, no dreams, no regrets, no memories. We cry and are hopefully comforted. Is this a state of bliss or one of ignorance? In some sense, the state of Adam and Eve was a blissful existence, unencumbered by the evils of the world until they ate from the tree of life. Is that state preferable to a state of trouble, suffering, but complex joy? I think there's more to life than simply living in blissful ignorance. And as we grow, we start to experience the world in different ways, a world full of teddy bears and thorns, smiles and tears, comfort and discomfort, happy things and scary things. Because each event we encounter shapes us. Each choice makes us who we are. One thing is certain, though. To all of us, everything changes, whether we want it to or not. Sometimes we choose change. Sometimes it's forced upon us. But change will happen. And it's an interesting thing that change is actually fundamental to the way the universe is constructed. One of the most fundamental laws of physics is based upon change. Essentially, anything left untended will decay, become chaotic, and disordered. In the beginning, God created order from the chaos. We must strive to preserve this order and strive to preserve the status quo. Wow, this must sound really depressing. But within this change, some things are certain. If I drop this ball, which I forgot to bring, which you imagine I had a ball, it will hit the floor. I might not know precisely where, but I know for certain it will hit the, hit the floor. And so it is with our lives, I think. I've certainly struggled to work out what path I should be on. Which path should I take? Because fortunately, by living in the West and having money and all sorts of things, I can choose. I'm not forced to work in a factory from all hours God sends for $30 a week. I have choices. And sometimes within choices, it's difficult to work out if choices are the right ones. But I believe that if we turn to Jesus and God with our heart and with our minds and with our souls, we will end up being closer to God. We might not now know the details of how we will do this or where we'll do this, as implied by Vicky, whose journey is taken to places. But if we put God at our hearts, we will become closer to him. The details will work themselves out in some wonderful and interesting way.
but being close to God would be the greatest thing of all. Change will happen. Our bodies will change, our hopes, our dreams, those around us will change. You know, I now have a stick because my knees hurt. And, you know, well, that's life. I can't not have a stick because I, well, I could, but it, it helps me, so I might as well have one. You know, you, you've got some cards, you've dealt some cards, you go play your hand the best you can. But the great thing is that some things never change in all of this. There are still the green shoots of spring, there are still glorious sunsets, there are still purring cats and wagging tails, simple meals shared with friends, timeless pleasures, music, songs, poetry, smiles and a simple hug. But beyond all of this, God waits, speaking to us, listening out for us and holding us all, sustaining us. On this earth, Jesus Christ is with us as the ultimate role model. His physical presence may have ascended, but he left this earth with parables, words of wisdom and a record of how to walk, breathe and live. And most importantly of all, the Holy Spirit to nourish us as we go through life. Jesus left us two simple instructions. Love each other, love God, and pray, pray, pray. If there's one thing Jesus told people to do and did himself, it was pray. It's a hard thing to do. It might seem straightforward, sit there and think about God, but actually to pray from the heart is something that takes practice, courage, and patience. We can't yet ascend to heaven ourselves, but we can yearn for heaven with our souls. And for me, the main message of the ascension is a yearning to be close to God, to find him in the quiet, still places. You're all on this earth to be the hands and feet of Jesus, to act in accordance with his will. He is the vine, and you are the branches. We all have our own unique fruit to bear, even if we're not sure yet what form that fruit will take. Be who you are. Be who you were meant to be. Listen for the gentle guiding hand of the Lord. Pray in all things and trust that he is there sustaining you in all that you do. I'll close with another poem written by a guy called Thomas Merton, who seems to be saying many of the things that I was thinking. And so uh, I'll just read this before we have a moment of prayer. The ascension is the feast of silence and interior solitude when we go to live in heaven for Jesus. For he takes us there after he has lived a little while on earth amongst us. This is the grace of ascension day, to be taken up into the heaven of our own souls, the point of immediate contact with God. To rest on this quiet peak in the darkness that surrounds God to live there through all trials and busyness with the tranquil God who makes all things tranquil. These are calming, deep words. And I hope that with this calmness and depth in your souls, you'll have the courage and excitement and joy to go out and face the world in the way that Jesus meant, to be the person that you are to be, to act with joy at the wonderful gift that's been given us through Jesus Christ.